Hello and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. Today we are focusing on the first convicted serial rapist in New Zealand. In the late 80s and early 90s, Auckland was considered a safe place. Parents felt confident leaving their children home alone at night while they were sleeping. That all changed and the city became gripped with fear when the possibility emerged that there was a serial rapist terrorising the southern suburbs of Auckland. Every girl and woman became a potential victim and every man a potential suspect. In 1993, New Zealand police became aware of the possibility that there was a serial rapist operating in the South Auckland area. From January 1988, numerous home invasion rapes occurred in South Auckland suburbs, all with some similarities. The perpetrator would gain entry to the house, grab a knife from the kitchen, threaten the victim with the knife, physically assault them, and then rape them. The victims, all women, ranged from 10 years old to their early 20s, and they all recounted similar crimes. A breakthrough in this theory was made in 1993, when police obtained a DNA sample after a 12-year-old girl was attacked and raped four times in the suburb of Clendon Park. The sample was a huge step forward for the investigation, allowing detectives to narrow their list of potential suspects through a blood type analysis. In August 1993, Operation Park was established to catch the perpetrator, who was now being called the South Auckland Rapist. Operation Park was led by Detective Senior Sergeant John Gott, who immediately called in the media to publicise the case and place advertisements in local newspapers pleading for the offender to turn themselves in. The publicity surrounding the investigation would later prove counterintuitive, as the offender became more aware that they were being sought after and became more careful with leaving behind DNA evidence. I'd love to know the intuition behind that idea. Yeah. Please come forward. Please let us arrest you. Yeah. There's a reason this was the first one. They, I think they learnt a lot from this expedition. Hopefully. Yeah. Operation Park established that in the 18 months between January 1988 and June 1989, the South Auckland rapist attacked 12 people, 11 in Mount Eden and one in Papatoitoi. After this, his offending slowed a little, but continued steadily until 1990, when he attacked an 18-year-old woman as she was walking home. This attack was reconstructed on Crime Watch, a New Zealand program which recreated unsolved cases with the hope of getting information from the public. This program brought in a few leads, but none of them were able to identify the perpetrator. However, the publicity of the show did slow down the South Auckland rapist for a few years. When the DNA breakthrough happened in 1993, police were able to link a number of offences from a similar time frame and geographical area. Further, police believed that the South Auckland rapist was already a convicted criminal who had spent time in prison, due to some lengthy periods of time between offending. This allowed police to narrow the potential suspects. In March 1994, police began compiling a list of potential offenders and were making progress on obtaining DNA samples from those on the list. Around the same time, undercover officers were patrolling the South Auckland area at night, searching for men who matched the description of the South Auckland rapist. However, the attacks continued. But soon, another DNA breakthrough came. In 1994, the attacker was able to gain entry to a house where a 14-year-old girl was home alone. She was asleep in her bed when she was woken up by the man on top of her. She screamed for her parents, but he produced a knife and told her to shut up. He then punched the girl repeatedly in the face, breaking one of her teeth and cutting his hand in the process. The girl lost consciousness and was then dragged from her room into the lounge, where she was beaten again and eventually raped. Among the significant amounts of blood found at the scene, 
police were able to identify a blood sample that didn't belong to the girl and deduced that it must have belonged to her attacker. The blood sample helped them narrow the list further, and one of the remaining names was Joseph Stephen Thompson, who was no stranger to the law and had served time in prison for similar offences in 1986. Born in August 1958, Thompson was one of 12 siblings. He grew up in Whakatane in New Zealand's North Island. His home life was unstable. Thompson's father, Charlie, would often have parties which carried on late into the night. It was at these parties that Thompson was first abused. One of Charlie's male friends would climb into Thompson's bed while the party carried on and sexually assault him. In exchange, he would give Thompson some leftover change as payment. By the age of 10, most of Thompson's siblings had been sent to live with relatives, and he was sent to live with his grandfather before he was sent back to his mother's house. Thompson's parents had separated, and his mother then put him and his younger brother into a taxi and sent them to live with his father. But Charlie wasn't home when they arrived, and so social welfare was contacted and they were placed into a foster care for a couple of days. When Thompson was 14, he went to live with Charlie and his new wife, Emma. But Emma didn't like having Thompson around, and so she just moved house without him. Which is horrible. And illegal? Was that not illegal? You can't just move house without your kid. Yeah, you can't. Maybe someone was coming to get him. I don't think these people really cared that much Mm. about the law. It was around this time that Thompson dropped out of school at 15 years old in 1973 and joined the Stormtroopers, a gang which was gaining prominence in New Zealand in the 70s. There's not a lot of information about the gang online, but there are some reports that the Stormtroopers were a white supremacy gang and wore swastikas and other Nazi regalia. After joining the Stormtroopers, Thompson started getting into trouble with the law. In 1974, he was charged with stealing a car, and in 1976, he was charged with attempting to steal a car, driving while disqualified, and drink driving. This pattern of offending continued for a number of years. During this time, Thompson developed a relationship with a woman, and together they had two children. But she eventually left him when his drunken behaviour and abuse became too much. Thompson's sexual offending began in March of 1983. He had gone to visit a friend, but he wasn't at home. Thompson knew that a young woman lived next door and decided to break into her house. He got in through an unlocked window, but the woman was out seeing a movie. Thompson waited until the 21-year-old woman returned and had gone to sleep before he cut the telephone cord and raped her at knife point. Thompson then fled from the house. In 1985, his second partner also left him and took their young baby, as she was also unable to withstand his violence anymore. In 1986, Thompson raped another woman. This time, he was waiting in a Mount Eden flat when a 24-year-old returned. He attacked her and raped her, leaving her with a sexually transmitted disease. After this offence, Thompson was caught and sentenced to nine months imprisonment, but was released on parole after serving just four. At the time, DNA profiling wasn't very widely used, and therefore it was not mandatory for people convicted of a crime to provide a DNA sample. Upon his release in January 1988, Thompson's offending resumed almost immediately. In 1989, following the breakdown of the relationship between him and his partner, and subsequent child custody battle, he was meeting with his lawyer. After this meeting, he left his lawyer's office and noticed a 14-year-old girl across the road. He followed her home and raped her. We've already covered a number of offences up until Operation Park was established, between 1988 and February 1993, but Thompson continued offending after that time. It was in 1993 that Thompson diversified his offending, 
as he used his home invasion skills to commit burglaries. Also in 1993, he attacked a 25-year-old woman who worked as a nurse. He broke into her house in Sandringham and was possibly planning to hide until she was asleep, but the woman encountered Thompson in the hallway, where he physically assaulted her and raped her. His next victim was a 15-year-old girl who had been in her bedroom brushing her hair when she saw a stranger staring through the window. The girl alerted the men who were home with her at the time, but they told her to check for herself. She left the house, but didn't see anyone outside. When she turned around, Thompson was there, and he grabbed her and raped her. Her cries for help were drowned out by heavy rain. Thompson then dragged the girl to nearby Mountfoot Park, where he tied her to a tree and raped her again. Shortly after this, Thompson struck again, this time attacking a 10-year-old girl, his youngest victim. Since 1988, Thompson's offending had been increasing in frequency until it peaked in 1994. That year alone, he committed 14 rapes. As police were closing in, Thompson moved to Mount Albert with his partner Joanne. The pair were reportedly looking for a new start, and were married on the 25th of March 1995, but their marital bliss didn't last long. Just one month later, on the 26th of April 1995, Thompson was first contacted by police, requesting that he provide a blood sample. Initially, Thompson objected to the sample on the basis that it contradicted his beliefs as a Jehovah's Witness. I don't know if he was a Jehovah's Witness. Unconfirmed. Instead, police convinced him to provide a saliva sample. Thompson didn't show up to provide the sample when he was supposed to, saying that he was sick. The police went to his house and took him in for testing. Then, Thompson attempted to sabotage the test one last time by smoking a cigarette directly beforehand, which he thought would contaminate the sample. Good one. Yeah, that's like Genius. swilling some mouthwash before you get breathalyzed at the RBT. So you can say, oh, it's mouthwash. That's why I'm drunk. <laughs> I am so shocked that this man with like these appalling acts has managed to have three partners up to this point and progressed all relationships pretty far. Mm, children, children, marriage. He's just out there doing this, these horrible things after the dark. And they have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he had a... Great personality. Yeah, good demeanor. Maybe he was really funny. And then, like, later on would reveal more negative traits, mm. as the past relationships have shown. Yes. But yeah, like, he definitely manages to get into partnerships mm. fine. Interesting. Yeah. In the 90s, DNA tests were conducted in two stages. The first one would broadly identify any matches between the sample and the evidence, and the second one would go into more detail. Thompson's attempted sabotage of the sample didn't work, and at the first identification stage, he was considered a potential match. At this point, police placed him under tight surveillance as they continued to gather evidence to support their case that Thompson was the South Auckland rapist. The second phase of testing proved that Thompson's DNA was a positive match for the DNA collected from the blood sample in 1994, and they swooped in to arrest him. In June 1995, New Zealand police swarmed Thompson's home with four police cars and police dogs in attendance, should he make a plan to escape. When they knocked on the door, the opposite happened. Thompson remarked that he'd been expecting them, took a quick shower and grabbed a jacket and accompanied police down to the station. It was here that the extent of Thompson's offending unraveled. Over a weekend of interviews, Thompson confessed to all the crimes that police had linked to the South Auckland rapist, and even some that hadn't been linked. During these interviews, he confessed to assaulting as many as 49 women and girls in South Auckland during the 1980s and 90s. Over time, speculation has risen that this number is in fact closer to 70 victims. During their investigation to identify the South Auckland rapist, New Zealand police developed more sophisticated criminal profiling techniques, allowing them to narrow down their initially long list of persons of interest 
and hone in on a smaller group of suspects. These techniques are still used by New Zealand police today, more than 25 years on. As he was confessing to all of these extra offences that they hadn't linked, he also confessed to a number of offences that they'd never even heard of, that had never been reported, Mm. and they attempted to make contact with the victims because Thompson obviously said where they lived and, you know, maybe knew their name or something. But they couldn't a lot of the time, and a lot of the time they didn't want to have anything to do with it, Mm. they didn't want to talk about it. I guess even in the 90s, a little while ago now, but not that long ago, there was still such a, a huge like stigma around being a survivor of rape. Oh, yeah. And about coming forward. And it, not even coming forward, like being approached by police, mm. saying like, your attacker has named you. Mm. Do you want to confirm it? Like, it's not even like stepping up. It's yeah. just being asked about it. Yeah. And you just don't want to talk. Yeah. Yeah. I always wonder like when it comes to confessing to like these 49 plus potentially plus crimes like Mm. how would you even differentiate and like remember and be like yep that one was me and yep this one was me too like yeah apparently i've heard that sometimes some offenders keep this almost like scientific or like mathematical very ordered like list in their minds like of all their offenses and others just they blur them all into one and where they can't even remember anymore Mm. so it seems like he was one of the former where he just remembered exactly what he did and like Yeah. Yeah. The profiling revealed many consistencies. Thompson often attacked his victims under the cover of darkness. He targeted lower socioeconomic suburbs, as these houses were often less secure, and it was less likely that there would be a responsible male present at the house. Sometimes in these areas, parents would leave their children home alone without any adult supervision. While he was in the process of committing burglaries in the area, he would sometimes come across a new victim and then plan his attack, including mapping out his escape route before striking. If the circumstances were not suitable at the time, he would earmark the house and come back to target the victim another time. When he gained entry into their homes, he would take a knife from the kitchen and threaten the victim. If they resisted, he would resort to physical violence, punching and beating the women until they were unable to resist. Often, his attacks were accompanied with threats to life and occasional threats that he would return, and sometimes he did. Over the course of July 1995, Thompson appeared before Justice Fisher in the Otahuhu District Court twice. The first time was on the 17th of July, where he was charged with 15 counts of rape. After this hearing, more evidence was gathered and confessions made. A fortnight later, on the 31st of July, Thompson appeared again, this time charged with a staggering total of 129 offences, including 46 counts of rape on both young women and children, which also included the 15 offences mentioned on the 17th. Thompson pled guilty to all 129 charges, and was sentenced to 30 years imprisonment, with a minimum non-parole period of 25 years. Ordinarily, this kind of conviction would include a non-parole period of 10 years, but sentencing judge Justice Fisher was satisfied that the circumstances of the case were, quote, so exceptional that a minimum period of imprisonment of more than 10 years was justified. In ascribing the 25-year minimum period, Justice Fisher took into account the mitigating factors, including Thompson's abusive and unstable upbringing, that he had been the victim of sexual abuse himself, but also took into account an admission made by Thompson during psychiatric sessions prior to sentencing. On the 2nd of August 1995, Thompson identified that there was a substantial risk 
that he would continue to commit acts of sexual violation, particularly if he was under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and that there was a possibility that he would use lethal force on a victim who offered significant resistance to his attack. The psychiatrist concurred that he was a substantial risk to the community. During sentencing, Justice Fisher noted, quote, It is difficult to think of any person who has brought more pain and misery to so many people in New Zealand history. I feel like confessing to the psychiatrist is such an interesting reveal of character. He seemed very honest after he was caught by the police. Yeah, ready to go, ready to confess. Like, yeah, everything after that, he was just like, well, this is it. Yeah, and he was, like, not about to lie to try to get a shorter sentence. Yeah, yeah. For further context of Thompson's family, during his adult life, his father Charlie was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for sexually abusing two of his 18 children. This abuse even resulted in Charlie fathering a child with one of his own children. Charlie Thompson reportedly agreed that the incidents were incest, but refused to accept that they were rape. He allegedly described it as, quote, going down to the kitchen to get a feed. There are some reports that Charlie and his son were incarcerated together for some time at the Rimutaka prison, but it's unclear whether they had much contact. During the seven years that the South Auckland rapist was active, residents of the community lived in fear, and took greater precautions to protect themselves and their families. Parents stopped letting their children walk to and from school, extra locks were added to doors and windows to prevent an invasion, and some people reported that they started sleeping with a weapon, like a baseball bat, in arm's reach. In some areas, vigilante justice groups formed with the intention of seeking out or deterring the South Auckland rapist from offending within their community. Thompson became eligible for parole in 2020. This prompted one of the survivors of Thompson's attacks to speak to the media, expressing that while she had forgiven Thompson, she believed that he was still an undue risk to the community and didn't trust him not to reoffend if released. The woman, only identified as Shirley, was raped twice while she was at home with her young children. Once he became eligible for parole, it was recommended that he complete a child sex offender rehabilitation program and possibly an adult sex offender program after that in order to give himself the best chance at re-entering the community. However, at his parole board hearing earlier this year, it was revealed that Thompson had failed to take the first steps towards completing these programs, as he feared that other prisoners might later discuss his contributions as part of the program to the wider inmate group. He said, quote, I have seen inmates come back from these programs, and they are sharing what the inmates said. I don't want to be put in that situation where I have to contend with that sort of thing. Instead, Thompson highlighted to the parole board that he had given up smoking, alcohol, and illicit drugs since entering prison, and had even given up swearing. He then went on to say, quote, I'm willing to do as much as I can. I have been looking forward to doing anything towards rehabilitation. Seemingly, not complete the programs he's being asked to do, though. While the parole board took these things into consideration, along with the fact that his conduct in prison had been mostly good and he'd been a reliable worker in the kitchen, they determined that he would not be eligible for parole until he had completed these programs and engaged in individual psychological treatment. He is scheduled to appear in front of the parole board again before the end of January 2023. So his fear of attending these programs is that someone's going to rat. Someone's, yeah... The other people that are at the program... Yeah, they're going to be like, he did are this. ...are going to go and be like, oh, did you hear? Like, especially, like, child sex offenders... Oh, yeah. ...don't do well in prison. Oh, yeah. But anyone at the child sex offender rehabilitation session is a child sex offender. Yeah. So why would you snitch on someone else when they could just snitch on you? 
it's like we're one and the same, buddy. Yeah, like, we're both at the program. Yeah, you can't blackmail me. We're yeah. in the same position. Exactly. I guess, you know what? He has a very, very shocking number of charges to his name. That's true. He is at the severe end of the spectrum. So potentially, like, that's the blackmail. He does have a bit more blackmail content. He also just doesn't seem that keen to get parole. Like, this hearing... He's not applying for parole. It's just that his 25 years is up. Mm. So now, like, they're just, they're doing them. They have to, like, see it's, him. Yeah, it's like the, you have to get seen every now and again to, yeah. like, see how you're going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not applying. He doesn't seem, like, motivated to get out of jail. Like, he seems kind of content to stay there, which is interesting. Well, to be honest, from the moment he was arrested, that, like, seemed to be his energy. Mm. <laughs> was like, all right, well, I'm headed in. True. Yeah, and he seems like... When he works in the kitchen, I think he's, like, quite religious. I think he's part of, like, a religious group in prison. I wonder if he is the only serial rapist in New Zealand. I wonder if there's been others since. There was another one, like, a year after this. I don't think there are very many at all. And this guy would definitely be the worst. Mm. It is, like, a particularly bad, I guess, heinous thing to do. And you risk, especially these days, you risk leaving a lot of evidence. Yeah, he was really on the dawn of DNA, wasn't he? Yeah. And as stupid as the police were in some parts of this, they figured out it was him. Yeah, it seems like they did a good job. Yeah, like narrowing down the list, like gathering enough clues and DNA. Doing the, like, yeah, the blood typing and... Yeah, so potentially the poster was just a misstep. And yeah. they, were, they did a great job overall. <laughs> they recovered, they reeled it back in. Yeah. And they were like, okay, let's get some hard evidence. This person is not coming forward. Let's fire the person who <laughs> yeah. printed those posters. Yeah. <laughs> and put the poster budget into DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do think that 25 years is a pretty short sentence for, like, the amount of charges he confessed to. Mm. I think during sentencing, the judge also said something like the reason that he extended it to 25 years was so that he said it was so that either Thompson would die in jail or that by the time he was released, he would be like so old and weak Mm -hmm. that he wouldn't be able to like overpower anyone or like wouldn't be able to hurt anyone because he would be old and weak. So yeah, I think he is getting on a little bit, getting a bit older. Yeah. Still, but mm. a man in the 60s can be very strong and yeah. very sprightly still. Definitely. So we won't know for another three years what is going to happen. Or like... He could be completing the programs as we speak. A year and two months. It's not 2020 anymore, Helen. <laughs> it's almost 2022. Holy shit. I know. He could be doing the programs right now. Hopefully he is. Hopefully he's getting his psychological treatment. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much all we have for today's case. Thanks for joining us today. It was great sharing this case with you. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.